Anyone who looks around the world today and asks, what's going on? And asks, God, what are you doing? Hasn't read the book. Because it tells us. I believe it was Peter who said, He has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need to know, everything we need to understand, we have before us. And it absolutely amazes me how clear Jesus is. And in light of that, how we still bump into the walls and grope in the darkness because we haven't, we haven't heard what He said. This morning is, is a, a prime example of that. We'll be in Matthew 13 one more time. Looking at three parables, back to back. And as we read these... Understand that Jesus is giving us the big picture. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. And they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away, so it will be at the end of the age. Lord, we ask You show us what these things mean. We, like Your disciples, now gather around You and we say, could You explain to us the meaning of these parables? Help us to understand. We sometimes, Lord, laugh a bit at the apostles and the questions that they had and how little... They understood. But Lord, we only do so because we are in the same boat and we understand them so well. And here we are 2,000 years later and even as we read Your Word, even as we hear Your Word spoken, Jesus, we still ask the same questions. I think how many times, Lord, I've heard these parables growing up, going to church. How many times the parables have been taught on a Sunday morning and how many times I have just sat there dumbfounded wondering what exactly they mean, or not taking the time to ask. Well, Lord, this morning we're asking that You reveal to us the deep truth behind these parables. Jesus, what were You saying? Open our eyes to see clearly by Your Holy Spirit and to understand Your Word. And seed Your Word, Lord, deep into our hearts, the Word implanted, that we might be not only hearers, but doers of the Word as well. Teach us, Holy Spirit of the living Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been said that perception is everything. We've seen a graphic example of this with the big three U.S. automakers over the last three weeks. Maybe you remember just two weeks back, the CEOs came to the U.S. Congress asking for $25 billion in aid for their ailing companies. And I, among many, am asking the question... At what point are we going to stop bailing out 
and invite people to some sense of responsibility. That being said, they came flying in on private jets. And I was watching actually when, and I forget which congressman it was, but it was a great question. He said, of of the three of you and your ailing companies, can I just get a show of hands, who did not fly in on a private jet to meet with us today? And none of them could raise their hand. And the point was made very clearly as to how they were handling money. Well, here we are, a couple of weeks later, this week, they returned to Washington, hats in hand, humbly driving the 520 miles from Detroit to Washington in fuel-efficient hybrid cars. Why would they do that? Because public opinion is everything. Perception is everything. It's a PR campaign. Because the companies, the automakers, at least the higher-ups, realize that we've got to change America's perception of us or we're getting nothing. So we have to show at least that we have a plan. We have to show what we're doing here and we have to try and show that we're willing to take pay cuts. All three of the CEOs took personal pay cuts. They are now making a dollar a year. I don't know what that says about stocks and you know their, their investments and what else they've got going on, but from the companies, they're only taking a dollar a year. And this time, interestingly, they're not asking for $25 billion. They're asking for $34 billion. Well, perception may not be everything, but it sure makes a difference in how we view things, doesn't it? The same is true of the Scriptures. I, I think back to the book of Daniel. Mentioned Daniel on Wednesday night. How in Daniel chapter 2, Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a glorious statue. Kind of reviewed that. The, the statue had a golden head and silver arms and a bronze belly and iron legs and then feet of iron and clay. But the thing to understand about that dream is that it is from a human perspective. This is how man views man. This is Nebuchadnezzar having a dream of four great kingdoms. And his dream looks at those kingdoms as a monument. As a huge monumental statue, impressive with that, with that golden head that did represent Babylon. Man's perspective. Four world-dominating kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And we look back and we see the description, and, and now we know that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. The four world nations that would dominate Israel that would stand over several decades. Interesting, in Daniel chapter 7, another vision is given of the same four kingdoms. Again, of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But this time it's not from a human perspective. This time it's a vision given to Daniel, and we get God's perspective of the same four kingdoms. Listen to how the vision is described. A lion with eagle's wings, a bear with ribs hanging out of its mouth, a leopard with four wings and four heads, and finally a terrifying iron-toothed, ten-horned beast. The difference in perception is huge because while man, Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream and saw a monumental achievement, God looked at the same four nations and sees a monstrous zoo. When man says, look at what we can do, look at how we stand, God says, look at how beastly your kingdoms, your nations really are. Perception, perspective, is everything. I want to learn how to see with God's perspective. I don't want to look around at the world with, with my perspective. Les mentioned during communion about how we have a tendency to think things in our hearts and have a perspective, even about other people, that's not fair. 
It's not right I had to repent this morning. I was thinking about someone that I had a wrong perception of. And it was my heart that was the problem, not them. I want to see with God's eyes. I want God's perspective. When I look at each of you, I want to see you the way Jesus does. When I look at the world around us, when I look at people working at the county, I want to see them the way Jesus does, Shelly. I want to see the world with Jesus' eyes. I want to have God's perspective. That's why we spend so much time in His book. Because He alters our perception. He changes our perspective of everything around us. Isaiah 55, verse 8. He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In Hosea chapter 14, verse 9, he says, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. I don't want to stumble. I want to walk in the right way of the Lord. And so this morning, even as we approach the parables of Christ, we begin to recognize something. These parables change our perspective. He spoke in these ways so that we would be altered in our approach to the Lord. The righteous walk in the right ways of the Lord. Transgressors stumble in them. And if you want to know His thoughts, if you want to walk in His ways, then you're in a good place this morning here in Matthew chapter 13. The power of the parables of Jesus is they do just this. They welcome people of faith and they weed out the cynics and the critics. The cynic approaches the parables of Jesus and reads them as interesting stories, as allegories, and then tries to make the whole scripture an allegorical thing that's not really true. The cynic doesn't get it. But the person of faith who comes to Jesus with faith develops a godly perspective that alters us deep within. Now, the parables I want to consider this morning are all from God's perspective. They're His perception. Although, like many of the parables, they've been misperceived by us. I want to remind you that in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is giving seven key parables which unlock the mystery of what He calls the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, we talked about last week, is the spiritual kingdom that is currently germinating in the world around us today. We are currently part of what He calls the kingdom of heaven. It's not a heavenly ethereal thing. It's actually what's going on. It is the answer to what's going on in the world. What's happening? God, what are you doing? He is seeding the kingdom of heaven. We made that distinction clear last year, or last week, that uh, the current spiritual kingdom is not the same thing as the coming millennial kingdom. That promised thousand year reign of Christ that He promised to the Jewish people that will be a complete fulfillment of prophecies given that have yet to be fulfilled. We are not in the millennial kingdom the literal kingdom to come. But we are in the spiritual kingdom, which is growing in a mysterious and wonderful way. But there's another subtle distinction that can be made in the seven parables that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. The first four that we have covered are seen from a human point of view. They're from man's eyes, not like Nebuchadnezzar elevating man, but they give us an earthly understanding of what's going on in the world during this age. But the last three... The last three, it's as if we got on a great glass elevator and we were pulled up above and given this great panorama of what God's doing. We can see the whole big picture from God's perspective. We get the divine point of view 
the big picture from the Lord's eyes. The parables of the hidden treasure, the costly pearl, and the dragnet cast into the sea give us this wide-angle lens with which to view this very age. All the way down, by the way, to the very end of the tribulation, which Spencer pointed out to me Wednesday night. I had totally missed it. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. These parables will take us to the very end when Jesus comes in His glory, when the saints return with Him and He sets up and establishes His kingdom. These parables cover the entire gamut from the beginning of the church to the end, the very end, as Jesus says, of the age. So these last three parables in Matthew 13, you could call them panoramic parables. Because that's what they are. Let's look at them one at a time. I love these. Verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Now a quick read of this verse, and my understanding of this verse in the past is that it's a picture of a person who finds Jesus. Jesus is the treasure, the field is out here in the world, and I find Jesus and He is worth everything to me, so I sell all that I am to be with Him. But we need to understand with this one verse parable that Jesus isn't selling heaven. He's not saying, hey listen, heaven is so valuable, you need to give up everything to get it. It's worth all that you have. So go out and get rid of everything so that you can buy into the kingdom of heaven. He's not selling heaven here, gang, in this parable or in the next one of the costly pearl. He's not buying airtime on QVC, saying, for the next 25 minutes you can get your hands on this fine treasure as a special holiday gift to that special someone, and if you call now, we'll throw in a pearl. This is not about us buying into the kingdom. There are some questions we can ask that correct our perspective on this parable. First question is, who among us here has sold everything we had to buy into Christianity? Who really gave it all up? Who has sold everything to be a follower of Jesus Christ? No one wants to raise a hand on that one because the reality is none of us have. We have not given up everything. We haven't sold it all. We haven't given over everything. In fact, does anyone here really think you could afford the kingdom of heaven? Do you really think that you've got enough good in you to buy your way into the kingdom? No, so this parable cannot be about someone finding this treasure called heaven and buying it. Selling all that we have. We can't do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, one of my favorite verses, and it, it puts me in the right place. Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's how your pastor got called. He chose a fool. The fact that I can stand up here and preach the word to you to to me every Sunday is amazing. Because I am not the person who has the right to share what's being shared here. It is only by the Spirit of God, by the way, that any of this makes sense when it comes out of this mouth. Not many of you were wise, not many mighty, not many noble. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen. He's chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God, by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's be clear about that. 
Now, it's not that I think anyone is sitting here this morning thinking, I'm a, I'm a darn good person and I'm going to work my way into heaven. But there are many of us here this morning who wonder how we possibly could be saved. Who think, I'm a darn bad person and I'm not sure there's room for me there. It goes both ways. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And let him whose heart is failing, trust in the Lord. And believe that Jesus, while you can't afford it, Jesus can and has afforded you entrance into the kingdom. And even if we wanted to buy into heaven, we couldn't afford it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 tells us, however, but God being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, listen, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Praise God. So we can't buy into heaven. So we can't be the person buying the treasure in the field. It doesn't fit the divine picture. Well, okay, if this treasure is supposed to be us finding the kingdom, which, again, we've now shown that it can't be, but even if it were, why does the man in the parable hide the treasure? See, here's a problem, too. That is not a kingdom picture. We don't find the treasure of the kingdom of heaven and then quickly tuck it away and hide it. What did Jesus say in Matthew 10:27? What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim it on the housetops. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.12, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. We are not hiding anything. We have no business as people of faith to tuck away and hide what we have. Which is why we're in trouble with the county right now. Because we're not hiding anything. Oh, there are people who would come to you and say, why don't you Christians keep your faith to yourselves? Live and let live. Go ahead and have your church thing. That's fine. Just don't bring it to me. And my answer is, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't do that. I cannot help but speak about the things I have seen and heard. I have to tell you about Jesus. Why? Because, well, for one thing, it's good news. And no one wants to keep good news to themselves. But my Lord said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and I can't do that and hide my faith at the same time. So... This guy finds a treasure hidden in a field that we can't afford and he hides it again, which we're not supposed to do. And then he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Well, who sold all that he had? Jesus did. He's the only one who did. He's the only one who gave up every single thing that he had. 2 Corinthians 8 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you through His poverty might become rich. He bought the treasure. He's the only one who could afford it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. With that verse in mind, listen again to what He says. He says, He goes and sells all that He has. What does He buy? Well, look at the verse. What specifically does it say He buys? He buys the field. It doesn't say he goes and sells all that he has and buys the treasure. He buys the field. It's not just the treasure that was purchased. It's the entire field. 
That's an amazing thing. Are we the treasure? I think we could say the field is obviously the world. But are we the treasure? Well, that brings us to the defining question. What treasure, listen carefully, what treasure belonging to the Son of Man is currently hidden? It's not the church. The hidden treasure buried in the field is Israel. Israel is currently purchased by Jesus, but hidden away until a later time. It is not the church. Oh, you're a treasure. I'll get there. But the treasure here is Israel. Listen to this. Exodus 19.5 And a Jewish person, I would think, might pick up on this when Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Exodus 19.5 Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be to me a peculiar treasure above all people, for all the earth is mine. God is talking to Israel. And He calls them His treasure. Some might protest and say, Well, Israel didn't keep the covenant. So they can't be the treasure. No, they didn't keep the covenant. You're right. In fact, Israel hid themselves in their traditions. They buried the light of the treasure beneath their law and their atonement. But the Lord has not forgotten about His buried treasure. If you look at this parable in light of Israel, it is absolutely stunning because it's exactly what happened. A man goes into a field and finds a hidden treasure. Abraham was a pagan. Abraham was in the field, in the world. And yet God found him as a treasure. And then God would come as Jesus to that treasure. And the treasure rejected him. And so he hides the treasure again. And goes and sells all that he has. He died on the cross of Calvary for that treasure. And when he comes back, that treasure is going to be revealed. The world will know that Israel truly is the treasure of God. Psalm 135, verse 4, The Lord has chosen Jacob unto Himself and Israel for His peculiar treasure. Malachi 3.17, They will be Mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare My own possession, or treasure. The same word is used there. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. And again, what's wonderful here is Jesus doesn't just sell enough to buy the treasure out of the field, He sold all He had for the entire field. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through Him. John 3, 16 and 17. The Son of Man bought the field and will return for Israel, His treasure. Okay, so what about the church? Next parable. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. After calling to make sure that he could invest in it. (laughs) He sold all that he had. Okay, the pearl. Well, if, if the treasure is Israel, then couldn't the pearl be Israel too, or vice versa? No. The pearl cannot represent Israel. Well, why is that? Because it's formed from an unclean creature by Jewish law. It comes out of an oyster, and that's unclean. So it can't be Israel. We're talking about someone else now. We're talking about the church. And you may know this, but pearls are precious gems that are uniquely formed. And they begin, gang, listen to this, pearls start out as an irritation. 
They start in the tender parts of an oyster, and it could be a piece of glass or a piece of sand or a rock that gets in there, but it's an irritation. It's like the oyster getting a splinter. And the oyster begins to secrete a substance into its wound called knacker. N-A-C-R-E. Knacker. And this begins to surround that foreign irritation and it solidifies into a smooth and perfect pearl. And that's how it's formed. By the way, the oyster shell is made from the same substance, knacker, as pearls are made. When you pick up an oyster shell, that's the same stuff that a pearl is. We put high value on pearls and yet an oyster shell, you throw it away, well, it's the same substance. Same exact thing. It's all knackered. So you have this pearl... And I'm wondering if you get the picture that we are foreign irritants. <laughs> That's how we started. We are foreign irritations. We are outsiders, not included in the commonwealth of Israel. We're irritants. Somehow we got in. We're like the rocks and the dust and stuff in the field. But Jesus does something. We're outsiders who enter by the wounds of Jesus Christ. We are transformed into the preciousness of His very image. In the same way that the image of the oyster transforms a pearl that knackers the same stuff. So when we come to Jesus and we enter into His wounds, He transforms us. He redeems us. He washes us to make us into the very same type of substance. Romans 8.29, Paul said, Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So the reality is we're going to look like Jesus, gang. Oh, we're not going to become Jesus. We're not going to be a bunch of gods in and of ourselves on our own right. But we are being transformed into the image of Christ like a pearl transformed by the oyster. Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus like a pearl inside an oyster for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Here's a thought for you students of Revelation. After the Millennial Kingdom, Revelation chapter 20, the Lord comes along at that point and creates the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And John writes in Revelation 21, listen to this, verse 10, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper it had a high wall with twelve gates and the gates at the gates were twelve angels and names were written on them which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel so get this picture you've got the new Jerusalem coming down and it's, it's stunning it's amazing these beautiful gems Make up the whole of the wall. And you get to the gates. And on the gates are written all of the names of the twelve sons of the tribes of Israel. But watch this. The twelve gates, verse 21. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. And each one of the gates was a single pearl. That's where we get the so-called pearly gates. Because the Lord describes each gate as made of pearls. Well, pearls represent Gentiles. Again, because they could not represent Jews because they come from that unclean animal. But interestingly, the names of Israel are written all over us. What a wonderful picture of what God is doing. The pearl of the church combined with, connected to, the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Paul explains it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Who among us this morning, and don't raise your hand, but answer the question in your heart, who's feeling hopeless? Well, you see, before Jesus, that's exactly where every one of us were. But now... Now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He Himself is our peace who made both groups, the treasure and the pearl, who made both groups into one. Which is how the pearly gates have the names of Israel all over them. And you know this, the man who bought the field and the merchant seeking fine pearls is the one and the same man as Jesus in both parables. He's got two parallel programs going on. That's why he repeats the parable. Sometimes people read these. I know I have, and, and I go, oh, he's just repeating it again and again and again and again to try and make a point. No, he's not. He's talking about unique things. Each parable is unique. Each parable has, a, has an explicit statement in and of itself. It's not just repetition by teaching. It is look carefully. I believe Jesus is saying, man, when you read through Scripture, and especially when you come to red words, slow down. Don't go marching over three or four parables and go, oh, that's all about the kingdom, blah, 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 whatever. No, stop and listen. The treasure is not you. The treasure is Israel. But you are a treasure. You are pearls. And in two parables, Jesus gives us this picture of what's going on in the world, of what's happening in the kingdom. Two parallel programs happening at the same time. The hidden treasure of Israel, which cost him everything, is tucked away and hidden. That salvation not understood by the world yet. Not understood tragically by many in the church. But the other program that's going on simultaneously is the costly pearl of the church, which also cost him everything that he had. The hidden treasure, Israel. The costly pearl, the church. But there's one more group I need to mention before we finish. One of my favorite movies to watch around this time of year is Home Alone 1 and 2. I love the Home Alone movies. Three didn't do it for me, but Home Alone 1 and 2. Great movies. And there's a scene in the second movie where Harry and Marv, the two criminals, they've busted out of jail and they're hiding in a fish truck on the docks in New York City. Perhaps if you've seen that, you, you know the scene where they kind of stand up and they're looking over these crates of fish. And Harry says, Smell that, Marv? And Marv goes, Yeah, fish. And Harry goes, No, it's money. And Marv goes, no, it's fish. And Harry says, no, Marv, it's, it's money. Okay, okay, it's money. And fish. And we come to this parable and suddenly we have seen a treasure, we see pearls, and now we start to smell fish. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven, again, is like a dragnet, cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind... And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be, watch the, de- the explanation, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a division that goes on here. Suddenly there's a dragnet passing out, drawing all the fish in. The good ones are saved, the bad ones go into the fire. And it confuses me because, wait a minute, I thought I was saved by grace. Not by being a good fish. And that's true. 
I was saved. I am saved by grace. I am not. You are not. The church is not represented by the good fish here. The dragnet goes out into the world. When does this happen? I believe this happens after the church has gone home. I believe what we're talking about in this parable, which speaks of judgment, and remember, Jesus already, if you're in Jesus, your judgment happened 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. You're washed clean by the blood of Christ. You come before God as clean as in Jesus. And the church is not here at the end of the age. Other scriptures tell us this. 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Corinthians 15. And multiple others that explain the church has already been taken out, caught up, raptured, safely tucked away to be with the Lord. This Greek phrase, end of the age, is suntalia. And suntalia literally means the consummation. When it all comes down. That's what this parable is dealing with. When it all comes down. The consummation of all things. It's referring to the end of the final seven year tribulation when Jesus comes in His glory and closes out the age. So who are the fish? John wondered the same thing. Turning your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. It's an easy book to find. Being the last book in the Bible... So just keep going right and you're going to get there. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb! And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne of God. And they worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And what's cool about that verse is you guys already know the tune that goes with it. Verse 13, And one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? This is great. One of the elders asked the question, and those of you shepherds who are here this morning especially pay attention to this. This is what elders do. This elder knew the answer to the question. He knew what he was asking. But he asks anyway, because he wants to. It's his job to draw out faith and understanding in John. And so the elder says, Who are they? Where have they come from? And I said to him, John speaking, My Lord, you know which translated is, oh. And he said to me, watch this, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. All oh, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Why are there tears that need to be wiped from their eyes? Because these are tribulation saints. These are people who have come out of the great tribulation. Not people who went home with the rapture of the church. Not people who are saved before it all comes down. But those who are saved during 
the tribulation. These gang would be those who rejected the message of the gospel during the church age. These would be those who missed out on the rapture of the church. But they will also be those who refuse the mark of the beast. They will literally lose their heads for their newfound faith that happens during the great tribulation. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 24:14. Jesus said, "This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come." And listen, gang, even right now, friends, family members, and loved ones may ignore your words about Jesus. It's one of the most difficult things about walking as a Christian when you have family who reject Christ. They may. And you may never see that salvation. You may never hear that, okay, I accept Him as Lord and Savior. And you may bring it up again and again and again. And as we come into the Christmas holidays, you're going to be around family who are going to say, please don't tell me about your church stuff. Don't want to hear about your Jesus. Santa Claus is the reason for my season. Which is also why they look so grumpy. Gang, keep, keep telling them. Don't stop speaking the name of... Don't give up. Though they reject now, they may not reject then. God promises in Isaiah 55, verse 11, He says, My word will not come back to me empty. So speak His word. Get His word out. And don't worry. His word does not come back void. It doesn't come back without being successful. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying the rapture will happen. The church will be caught up. And sometime after that, when Israel signs a covenant with Antichrist, and all of this we cover in the Revelation study, but sometime after that, tribulation will begin. But the good news is there is still an opportunity for salvation, even after the church has been taken up. In fact, because of the phrase in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, after these things I looked, he said, and behold, a great multitude, that phrase is multiplied millions, which nobody could count. It appears that these martyrs will be party to the greatest evangelistic campaign of history. A massive, well, what did Jesus call it? A massive dragnet that is cast into the sea in which all manner of fish are caught and drawn up. That dragnet, that's that's a huge thing, gang. The dragnet, it was a method of fishing on the Sea of Galilee. There were several different methods. This particular one was large-scale fishing, where they would drop this massive net with weights on the bottom and floating floating corks on the top. And sometimes the net would literally be as, as long as a half mile behind the boat and they would drag this thing and it would be so full of fish they, they wouldn't pull it up on the boat like the smaller fishing boats like Peter and John the boys did they would drag it to shore and when they got to shore pull it up and they would go through the separation process because they would catch some unclean fish and some bad fish and some nasty things and they would also catch the good fish which would be set aside into the barrels so telling this parable on the shores of the Sea of Galilee would have made great sense but remember it's a massive dragnet of all kinds of fish And J. Vernon McGee said in his commentary on Revelation, the 144,000 witnesses in the Great Tribulation are going to do in seven years what the church up to the present age has not done in 2,000 years. Don't be so proud of our evangelistic campaigns. In fact, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. But the indication from my understanding of the book of Revelation, chapter 7, and you can go listen to this on the way, I encourage you to, because we go much more into depth than I can do this morning. In fact, I'll give you a hint or understanding here. 
the whole reason I did the Revelation study, well, not the whole reason, big part of the reason I did it was so that I could talk about things in here that would make someone go, what? I don't get that at all. And I wouldn't have to explain it. You could just go click on it and listen to it. So it's there for explanation beyond what I can do on a Sunday morning. But the indication, gang, in Revelation chapter 7 is there is a massive harvest of souls. A massive saving of lives out of that period called the Great Tribulation that is not achieved or accomplished by the church. We are not as evangelistically powerful as we might think we are. Now again, it doesn't mean that we don't continue to preach the Word. It doesn't mean that we don't invest ourselves in evangelistic campaigns and tell people about Jesus and desire to see the church grow and people be saved. But there will still be people saved during the Tribulation. Which raises the question, why not just wait for it? Just wait and see if it happens. A bunch of people disappear from the face of the earth, then I'll know, oh, okay, that was that rapture that Galen was telling me about. Okay, so I missed it. Bummer. But according to Galen's pastor, I can still be saved, so it really doesn't matter. You know, why not just wait? See it with your own eyes. There's a, there's a tour guide in Israel that I spoke with, and that was his attitude. He liked the Christians that he would take around. In fact, he exclusively works with Calvary chapels, and he loves to go around with them, and he hears about their Jesus, and he knows quite a bit of the New Testament, in fact, far more than most Christians know. But his attitude about the whole thing is, I'm going to wait and see. Jesus comes back. If your Jesus is Mashiach, and he comes back, I'll believe in him then. There's some problems with that perspective. The first problem is death. Because these who come out of the Great Tribulation gang, it will cost them their lives to believe in Jesus. There will be massive numbers of people lined up during that time being beheaded because they will not take the mark of the beast, because they will not worship the image that Antichrist sets up, which is stunningly similar to the concept of Nebuchadnezzar (laughs) setting up an image as well. It's going to cost them their lives. And... Because of the turmoil of those seven years, the first six years, or first, first three and a half, sorry, first three and a half years are called the wrath of the Lamb. Why? Because all hell breaks loose. There is judgment happening. Earthquakes and famine and war and bad stuff. Antichrist is unleashed on the world doing his thing. And people will be, there will be massive death. So you don't know if you wait until that time, you don't know if you're even going to be alive to make the decision to follow Christ. Not a good idea to put this thing off. Second thing is delusion. Delusion. If it's difficult, if, if, if it's hard to believe now, when the Holy Spirit is active and the church is present and the Word is being preached in the world, if it's difficult to believe now, how much harder is it going to be to believe then? Put it this way, if you're not willing to live for Christ in these days, how can you be sure, how can you be sure you'll be willing to die for Christ in those days? Death, delusion, and thirdly, and I think the Scripture is clear about this, a different position. Different position. These tribulation saints, those saved, are not the church. They are not the bride of Christ. They miss out on the marriage of the bride and the Lamb. They are in a different place. Yes, they're saved. Yes, they are eternally with God. Yes, they're there with Jesus. And it's all good. But it's a different position. 
And if you want to learn more about that teaching, go to the teaching on Revelation 7 on the website. And we go, like I said, much more in depth into that. What I'm saying with all this, though, is simple. Look back at the parables. Three parables. A hidden treasure. Israel. In the field of the world. The costly pearl. The church. And finally, the dragnet, which is tribulation saints pulled out, saved during that time. It's the big picture. What is God doing right now? He he has got His hand on Israel. And He is going to save a remnant of Israel. He has got His hand on the church. And He is saving the church. And anyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ during this age of grace is saved by grace and transformed from a foreign irritant into a beautiful pearl held by Jesus Himself. And He will throw out the dragnet. He lets out all the stops to save any who would come to Him even after the church is taken out. The treasure, the pearl, and the fish. In these three parables, Jesus lays out a panorama of the kingdom of heaven, of this spiritual age. Three groups in these three mystery kingdom parables. Three distinct groups making up one great and glorious kingdom when it's all said and done. Does that make sense to everybody? What a wonder Jesus is. What an amazing rabbi, our teacher, that he would explain things so powerfully and so beautifully to us. Now, someone has asked me before regarding tribulation saints. Why would God give yet another chance after the church is called home? I've heard, I've heard that question. Well, that's not really fair. You mean I live my whole life as a Christian, a do-gooder? And these people who just blow it off still have a chance? Why would God do that? In 1917, a man by the name of Frederick Lehman took a break from work, sat down, pushed a lemon crate against the wall, and he wrote the first two lines of a hymn, first two stanzas of a hymn on a piece of paper. What would become the third verse of this hymn was actually an old Jewish poem that was discovered, scrawled on the wall of a room in an insane asylum after the inmate had been carried out to his grave. That verse goes like this. Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. What we see in the treasure and the pearl and the dragnet is the love of God. For every individual on the face of this planet, the love of God. Why would God allow one more chance? Because He loves. Because it is not His desire for a single person to be lost. His love gang is indescribable, unfathomable, breathtaking. And you might be sitting here this morning thinking, nobody could love me. And I've got the proof. I've gone from one bad relationship to another in my life. No one could love me. I am no treasure. I'm no pearl. I'm not even good fish. (laughs) You missed the point. The primary point of these three parables is Jesus sold everything to save you. He cast a dragnet to catch you. 
And it's not the other way around. It's not that we sold it. It's not that we did it. It's not that we got ourselves into the net. Without doing a single thing, you are of highest value to Jesus Christ. Where the treasures of the kingdom, greater still, were the treasures of the king. Let's bow together. Father, sometimes your thoughts are so big, they're hard to even speak. Certainly, Lord, your love is so great. So great. That words cannot describe. We see this, Jesus, in your parables. As you cover the whole thing, you give us the big picture of the kingdom of heaven. And we know, Lord, those of us who have just cried out the name of Jesus, who have come to You in faith, are part of that kingdom. We know there is a people in the world today, Israel, who will be part of that kingdom, though lost and discouraged and even hopeless right now. We know there is a great number of people in the world today who have never accepted what You did. And until you call us home, make us bold, Lord Jesus, to speak these words of truth. To speak and reflect your love above all other things. That's what we're supposed to be known by. Thank you for investing your love in us. Jesus, for giving up all that you have. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.